John chapter 1. John chapter 1. John told us in chapter 20 of his gospel that he wrote this book that we might believe. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that through believing in him, we might have life in his name. And so John has introduced Jesus to us in this first chapter as the majestic Logos, the Word. The Word was in the beginning. He was with God. He was God. The eternal Son of God who has always been and who created all things. And then John explained that the Word was more than that. He loved humanity and He shined His light into the darkness of our world, offering us His eternal life. He was the true light. And then John said, if we receive Him, we are rescued from this darkness. We're made into children of God and given new life. And with that new life comes marvelous benefits that are only possible because Jesus brought all that He is to us. So we pick it up in chapter 14 of John chapter 1. We will not get through much this morning. John says, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And John bare witness of Him and cried, saying, This was He of whom I spake. He that comes after me is preferred before me, for He was before me. John says, And the Word became flesh. In addition to the Word just always being, and then shining His light in the darkness, and then, you know, being that true light to us, he says the Word became something new. He became flesh. That's what the word was made means. It means to become something. The logos, the thinker behind the thought, the light that constantly shined into the darkness of humanity, always was. But now he adds something new to his being. He became flesh. Now, John does not write that the Word became a man. And I think it's important that we understand the distinction because sometimes we say, well, the incarnation, what we're going to celebrate during Christmas is God became a man. But that's, that's not the full story because if you read like religious books from other faiths or you read mythologies, it's common to see deities invade a human body or temporarily come upon a human body or in, inhabit a human body. John doesn't say that Jesus inhabited a human body or he invaded a human body or he took over a human body. It's, he says he became flesh. The word flesh means human and all that it entails. Human. What does it mean to be human? I think all of us would say, I know, because I'm one. Well, Jesus became that. Now, I spent way too much time this week studying on what it means that Jesus was human and how all these guys got into and talked about the depth of the concepts of how that means Jesus has a, had a body, soul, and spirit just as we have a body, soul, and spirit. And that's all true and that's all right and that's all important, but it doesn't have a whole lot of practical meaning for us. And so I, I'm not going to belabor trying to explain that and how to show all the scriptures say all those things. Just know that when it says Jesus became human, he was all those things. And the reason I bring that up is because there are sometimes we try to, in our own logic, try to understand or explain the incarnation. And most of the time when we do it that way, we mess it up. 
It's much better to get the infinite God to explain it to us and just to go, got it, chief, instead of trying to fully wrap our brains around it because in some way, because we're finite, we're probably going to mess it up. We're going to leave something out. We're going to overemphasize something to the expense of something else. But this concept that Jesus became human, it eliminates the idea, the Gnostic idea, that Jesus took on the illusion of a body or that some kind of Christ or God consciousness settled on some regular dude at his baptism and then left him at the cross. No, Jesus became fully human with all that that entails. And then it says he dwelt among us. The word dwelt, it means to take up residence, to pitch his tent. He became your neighbor. He lived just like all of us would need to. And though he only lived among us for a short time, think about that reality that God, the Son, lived with his creation. Like, what does that mean? I like what Bishop Ryle says. He says, like ourselves, he was born of a woman. That's something we can all relate to here. Like ourselves, he grew from infancy to boyhood and from boyhood to man's estate. Like ourselves, he hungered, he thirsted, he ate, drank, slept, was wearied, felt pain, wept, rejoiced, marveled, was moved to anger and to compassion. He prayed, read the Scriptures, suffered being tempted, and submitted to the will of God the Father. Why is that important? that he did all those things, that he was human. Because it links him to every other person who has ever lived. Think about that for a moment. You ever heard the phrase, if you walked a mile in my shoes? I think sometimes we think of Jesus that way. Well, he, he, he walked a few miles in my shoes, or he walked a few miles in somebody's shoes. But the Bible doesn't say he walked a few miles in our shoes. It doesn't say that he for a short period of time, was human. It says he became human. He's not only been in our shoes, he is one of us. And he's one of us forevermore. That never changed. Look at Hebrews chapter 4 with me. Again, I think sometimes we can lose sight of the fact that Jesus retained his humanity. It's not something he took on for a period of time. It's something he became. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, the writer to Hebrews is trying to encourage these Jewish believers to not abandon the Lord. They were going through persecution. They were struggling. They said, let's go back to Judaism. And he he says, don't. Jesus is better, just like we sang. And one of the reasons is he says, because Jesus is a better high priest than any high priest that the people of Israel could offer you. He says in verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Don't give up. For this great high priest that we have, we don't have a high priest which cannot be touched, which cannot sympathize with the feeling of our infirmities, with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Jesus, he is not a high priest that can't sympathize with all the points of our weaknesses. 
All the things that I read to you there that Jesus experienced as a human being, he can sympathize with that because he has experienced those things as well. He is linked to us. Not just for a period when he dwelt on the earth, but forevermore. We not had a great high priest, but we still have a great high priest who can sympathize, who understands our weaknesses because he's still human. Do you understand that? Jesus did not lay behind his humanity when he died, when he rose again, or when he ascended to heaven. We don't have a great high priest who used to know what it means to be human. He still knows. And that means that just as when he pitched his tent on earth, people would come to Jesus and they'd pour their hearts out to him. And he could say, I know, I get it. He could look over at Nicodemus and see all the pain and say, Nicodemus, I'm coming to your house today. He could turn and the woman who touched him, he knew something happened and then as soon as she fessed up to it, he knew everything she'd gone through, he understood. We could still talk to him about anything because he still understands. He's still sympathetic. You had a bad week, you're angry, you're on the verge of tears, you can talk to him. And he'll say, I know. I get it. I've been there. Isn't that awesome? I think we make two mistakes, of course. One is to become too familiar with God. And what I mean by that is we treat him like a bro. And there's amount of respect there, of course, right? But I also think we can think that God's too high and then that we don't just talk to him. We don't just come to him. Now, there is only one human experience that Jesus never went through. Jesus, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, never sinned. He always chose to obey his Father. Now, we can look at that and go, well, then you don't understand what I'm going through right now. But here's the cool part. Like if, let me give you an example, okay? Let's say somebody came to me and they said, Will, you won't believe what I did. I'm like, what'd you do? I made this really bad decision. Now we're going to lose our house. Do you understand what that's like? No, I've, I've never been in that position. But I do have this check. Here. Do you really think you need him to understand what you're going through at that moment? No. See, sometimes I think, well, he didn't sin, so he doesn't know what I'm going through. Yeah. No, he went through the temptation and then he beat it. So here's the cool part, because not only does he understand the temptation and what you're going through, but he can do more than just understand what you're going through. He can help. He can, he can say, listen, I see what you're going through, but I went through that and I beat it. And so what I want to do is I want to beat it through you. I want to beat it for you. So come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy, my burden's light. Jesus may not have experienced sin, but he can do better because he can help us to overcome it. Now, that Jesus is fully human, does that mean that he ceased to be God or lost some of his deity when he became human? No. John says very clearly, and the word 
became human. The Word, He's still the Word, but He added something. He didn't subtract anything. He doesn't call Him a different name. He doesn't say, and Jesus became human. No, the Word became human. He remained the Word, but He added something new. See, this is different than water being turned into wine. When you turn the water into wine, there's no more water. That's not what happened here. Instead, the nature of God, the fullness of all the deity of God, and the child growing inside Mary's womb, they are united in one fully divine and fully human personality. Now, if you're trying to understand that, that's why I say you just kind of got to take it. Because, okay, so like people say, hey, what's, what's your ethnic background? And I say, well, I'm 50% German. My mom's side of the family is full-blooded Germans. I'm a quarter Puerto Rican. I'm an eighth Jewish. And I've got an eighth of a bunch of other stuff right? So that's how my makeup is. So normally when we think, well, okay, so Jesus is God and man. So it's like, well, like 70% God, 30% man. Like we think of it the same way. He said, no, he's 100% God and 100% man. He said, you can't be that. You can't be 100% Chinese and 100% German. You got to have some mix in there, but it's not the case with the Lord. So again, it's, it's kind of mind blowing for us. But this is why the Bible says it's something that God had to reveal. When Paul was teaching Timothy how to be a good pastor, he said to him, listen, this is, this is going to keep your feet on the ground until I get there. You know, I know that you're a new pastor, but just do this stuff and you'll be all right until I get there. And then he says this in 1 Timothy 3.16. Everyone have a fun Bible study, look up all the 3.16s in the Bible. It's kind of interesting. They're all kind of cosmic something like, whoa. Paul tells him, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And he explains what that is, that God was manifest in the flesh. It's a mystery. Mystery doesn't mean something unknown. It means something previously unknown that's now been revealed. Now we understand because it was revealed to us. In other words, we didn't figure it out. No one was sitting around crunching numbers and said, ah, I figured it out. I figured it out. God became a man. He was fully God, fully man the whole time. And everyone went, ah, that adds up. No. It's why sometimes people look at it and go, well, you believe in a fairy tale or a fable. And it's, well, yeah, it doesn't add up. It had to be revealed by an infinite being. Could not be comprehended by us. It's why when... Jesus was talking to the religious leaders. He questioned them. I love, I love that Jesus asked questions because God wants us to think. He wants us to ponder things. I always say my least favorite ages for kids are 5, 10, and 15. Because it's like kids hit a plateau at that point. They hit five and they're like, I got this figured out. And then they, that's kind of the I know stage. You're like, hey, da, da, da. oh, I know, Grandma. I know, Dad. You're like, yeah, you know everything. You're five, right? And you just kind of, that's the moment time you just want to be like, ugh. And then they do it again when they're 10, then when they're 15, and hopefully they stop when they hit 20. See, what happens in those moments is God has built into us an inquisitiveness. If you have kids, you fully get this. Like, they ask all sorts of questions, right? Sometimes you're like, no more questions. 
because they asked so many of them. But God designed them that way with inquisitiveness so that we can answer those questions. But what happens in those points in life where we kind of think we've got it figured out is that we stop asking questions. God never designed us to stop asking the questions. He never designed us to be self-sufficient. So he reminds us, he asks us questions. Read all throughout the Old Testament, the prophets, and God constantly asks Israel questions. Constantly. Because he wants them to think. Because what happens is, is we kind of get in mode where we don't ever sit down and go, I know everything. But we get in mode where we're like, this is what I got to do. And we just stop asking the important questions. You know, when I come to the Lord, and I want to I wanna hang out with Him, I want to read His Word, whatever, He says, He asks me questions. You know, I read today, my devotion today was in Isaiah, and it's about the destruction of Moab and how they're all going to go weeping and whatever. And I'm like, this is wonderful. What am I going to get out of this? And then a little question popped in my head. What direction are you headed, Will? What do you mean, what direction am I headed? I know what direction I'm headed. Maybe you might want to ask the question. It was good to ask the question. And when we take the time to ask some of these questions to ourselves or to others, sometimes we get realize there's information out there that we haven't been processing. Things about ourselves, things about others. We don't know as much as we thought we did. Jesus asked questions to the religious leaders. He said, hey, I got a question for you. He said, why is it that you guys say that the son of David is just a, a mere man, David's son, but David calls him Lord? And then he quotes a passage in the Old Testament where David's speaking to the Messiah, who's going to be from his lineage, and he says, calls him Lord. He says, why would, why would David do that if He's just talking about a descendant. David would never do that. Like, if you come from a culture where it's kind of either patriarchal or matriarchal, the idea is you know, whoever the oldest living grandparent is, they kind of call the shots. In the United States, we don't have that. Like, we're, we're a mishmash of cultures, but our general mutt culture is that we, say, we have a general idea you should respect your elders most of the time. Other cultures, though, have a very strong kind of pyramid type of scale where if like, it's the grandma or the grandpa or whatever, whoever's the oldest relative surviving where they kind of like, if they say, we're doing Christmas here, everybody going there, right? Some of you guys, if you come from a different culture, you know that, okay? You understand how that is. Well, Hebrew culture was such that you would never, ever call someone who came after you, someone born after you, like your kid or your grandkid, Lord. You would never utter those words. And so he says, you know, you guys have been teaching for centuries that the Messiah is going to be just a mere man. How is that possible if David calls him Lord? Because the only person David would call Lord is someone who came before him. And they went, great is the mystery of godliness. It has to be revealed. We try to reason it out, think it out. We come up with heresy. And so they look and they go, well, Messiah's not God. Messiah is just a man. Because the only way somebody could be after David and before David is if they're eternal, right? That means they've got to be God. Jesus shook up all their theology, bad theology, with the Word. Now, John explains seeing the unity, this unity of God and man in the next part of 
of verse 14 of John chapter 1. It says, the Word became human flesh and dwelt among us. Then he says, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. The word beheld, it means to spectate, to observe with continuity and attention. I'm not an Alabama or an Auburn fan, but pretty much if Alabama's playing, I'm rooting against them. And so yesterday, I had a lot of interest because the Auburn-Alabama game has had some weird upsets over the years. So I just had it on. And then it got to the end. And if you watched the game yesterday, you know it was a crazy ending. And I'm watching the game, and I'm thinking, they're going to beat Alabama. I was spectating. I had my eyes. I didn't miss anything because I wanted to see what was going to happen. Now, of course, my condolences if you're an Auburn fan because that was an absolute disaster. But this is what John says they did. we, We didn't casually observe. We spectated. We were watching. He had our full attention. We beheld His glory. The word glory there, it means that which shines out, splendor or radiance. Now, John isn't saying that Jesus glowed. It's like, we watched because he just didn't stop glowing. No. He wasn't actually shining or radiating light. This word is used to designate either all or some of God's attributes as they shine forth. We were watching his character, what he was like. You see... Jesus, we learned already, has been shining his light from the beginning of creation, right? To all humanity. From the dawn of time. He spoke to Adam. He spoke to Cain. He spoke to Abel. He spoke to Noah. He spoke to the patriarchs. And then he gave Moses the law. And then he gave the rest of the Old Testament through the prophets. Jesus had been speaking for all of history. But now, through the incarnation, Everything Jesus claimed to be was now observable with the eyes as well as the ears. And so what was John and the other eyewitnesses' conclusion when they observed Jesus? We beheld what was shining out, the attributes that he displayed. And the King James English really just has a hard time translating this. We beheld his glory, and then it's repeated, glory. It says the glory in King James, but it means wondrous glory. Glory indeed. Glory in truth. It was glory. It didn't look like the cloud or the fire in the tabernacle. I mean, this is not the first time God pitched his tent with men. I mean, when God's presence came into the tabernacle as a pillar of cloud by day and then a fire by night, right? He pitched his tent. And then, of course, they came to Mount Sinai and God's presence came on Mount Sinai and charred the top of the mountain. It wasn't like this but it was definitely the Shekinah of God. What was different was only the fact that it was now manifest through God the Son rather than God the Father. He says it was as of the only begotten of the Father. It was like something side by side with the Father, but different. If you put them side by side, you go, yeah, they're related, but it was different. The only begotten of the Father. Now, only begotten refers to Jesus's uniqueness, that he's one of a kind. Uh, People latch on to the begotten part and they say, well, no, see, Jesus, he was born at some point in eternity. At some point he wasn't, and then he was because it says he was born. But again, this is implanting our culture upon a foreign culture. You know, when we talk about birth, we talk about the process of 
you were in a womb and then you came out, you weren't, and then you were. But they didn't think of things that way. For example, we have this idea, if you have kids, you have to treat them all the same. Well, he got an iPod at 14. Everybody else has to get an iPod at 14. It's funny. Our kids are like, hey, I'm, I'm, I, I think our oldest son got one when he was 14 and got something like that when he was 14. Next one's like, hey, I'm going to be 14 next year. I'm getting an iPod, right? And like, what would give you that idea? <laughs> and of course, in our American concept, it's like, well, fairness. He got one, so I get one, right? That's a horrible idea. That's a horrible idea. Like, why would... So let's look at a guy who figured out parenting a little late but at the end was probably one of the best parents ever. Jacob. Jacob's on his deathbed. Not made a lot of mistakes prior to that point. But he's on his deathbed, and he brings in all the kids for the blessing. Now, the right thing to do culturally is to go, Reuben, you're my oldest. You get the double blessing. And he looks at Reuben, and he goes, Reuben, you are my oldest. He said, but you have no self-control. To give you the double blessing would be a bad choice. So no, you don't get it. Then he looked at the second and third, and he goes, Simeon and Levi, you guys are mean. You're nasty. You killed an entire village. You're not getting it. And then he said to Judah, Judah, your name means praise, and you're worthy of praise. You're getting the blessing. Then the grandkids come in. They're going to get blessed. And Joseph's like, all right, I'm going to put the, you know, put the oldest by the right hand and the youngest by the left hand. And Jacob does this. He can't even see, but he does this. Right, Joseph's like, dad, no, and he moves his hands. He goes, no, what I've done, I've done. I, I bring this up because, again, if we insert our ideology of how we look at things into the scriptures, you're going to come up with a wrong idea. Begotten in this phrase refers to only begotten doesn't mean he's God's only kid. It means Jesus is unique. He is unique. For example, the Bible says that he's the firstborn of all creation in Colossians. doesn't mean Jesus is literally a firstborn child. It means he occupies a position of preeminence. Like we say firstborn, all right, you're the first person mom had. No, no, that's not at all what that would mean there. It means he has the preeminence. And so here, He's like the Father. He's right beside the Father, equal standing. But He's unique. He's different. Jesus' glory looked different than the pillar of fire, the cloud of glory that signified the Father's presence, but it was the same glory, unique yet alike. He was human, but He possessed all the attributes of God that had been communicated through the Old Testament Scriptures. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says He's the outshining of the glory of God. And thus by calling him the only begotten of the Father, that he is not only became human, but he retained all of his divine glory. In stating such, John makes a differentiation between us and Jesus. We can become God's children by faith in Christ, but Jesus always has and always will be the only one who is God the Son. We're not all little gods running around. And so this is why why, while we call him friend, we also worship him. He did not cease to be God when he took on humanity. Something was added, but nothing was subtracted. Now, John sums up the attributes of God that he observed shining forth from Jesus by two words. 
we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. Full of. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, God declared to Moses that he abounded in goodness and truth. You ever want to have a fun study? Look at the scriptures every time they mention that God abounds or is full of goodness and truth. It's the same two words here, just a different language, full of grace and truth. These two things, these two attributes of grace and truth radiated from Jesus always. No matter what, no matter matter if he woke up not feeling great, no matter if the day was rough, he was always full of grace and full of truth. There was no half grace and no half truth. There was no 75% one and 25% the other with Jesus. He was 100% of both grace and truth at all times. What does it mean that he was 100% grace? Well, grace is God's unmerited favor lavished upon the infinitely ill-deserving. We in no way, shape, or form even deserve one ounce of God's grace, of his favor, and yet he lavishes it upon us. And then truth, truth, that which is in accordance with reality, what actually happened. Today, there's lots of things that purport themselves to be truth or grace, but to some degree, they're usually lacking. Like, for example, the phrase that was very popular about a year ago, love is love. I think the theme behind that is the idea of we need to be gracious. We need to be accepting. We need to be kind to people. Okay, maybe it's full of grace, but it's got zero truth. Because you can't define a word with the word. I remember when I was teaching in Peru, and it's the first time I was teaching through a translator. And a lot of times I'll tell you, well, this word means this. And so I was teaching, and it was one of my big points was, and this word in the original language, it means this. And the translator looked at me, and I was like, there a problem with the translation? He's like, it's the same word in Spanish. In other words, there's no significance. It'd be like me telling you, truth means truth. Doesn't that make you understand the word truth better? You go, no. In fact, you just wasted my time. I really learned real quick, I needed to change my sermon because I didn't know how many Spanish words meant the same thing, that, that maybe I wouldn't have any significance in pointing some of these things out. When you define a word with the word, it's not a definition. You need to give other words to define it. So love can't be love. You need to say love is, and we got a good definition from Scripture, patient, kind. Doesn't rejoice in iniquity, rejoices in the truth, right? All that's a part of it. Jesus was full of grace and full of truth. From the first tick of the time clock, Jesus has been shining grace and truth. And so when John and the others observed him, they said, it's just like he said. It's the same thing. Jesus never compromised on the truth, but neither did he ever compromise on his gracious love. And he still doesn't. Jesus, if you read the next verse in Hebrews 4, verse 16, he invites us before his throne of grace to find mercy and help, right? But Jesus also says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is, is close, right? You see, grace implies a need for pardon because you're guilty. You're guilty of something. Jesus never glosses over 
our need. He speaks to the reality of the situation. He says, you're, you're failing as a, as a father. You're, you're failing as a, a wife. You need to change. You need to repent. This is not working. This is not good enough. You have fallen short of my father's standard. And my father's standard is perfection. He tells us the truth. But grace not only does it imply that we need to hear those truths, but grace also implies a strong desire to pardon the guilt, even though a pardon isn't deserved. And so Jesus speaks to us the reality of his love. I don't want you to remain as you are. I don't want you to experience judgment. I want to change your life. And so he pleads with us to repent, and he promises rest for our souls if we will come to him. That John and the other eyewitnesses observed Jesus being faithful to all his claims in the Scriptures means you and I can know that Jesus will always be this way. Amen? He'll never change. Aren't you glad that you can set your feet on the solid ground of the fact that he's full of grace and full of truth? I mean, that, those are two things that you can know that will always be the case. I always know Jesus is going to give me the truth. And I always know that his desire is to pardon me, even when the truth is you're blowing it well. I love you and I want to forgive you and I want to change you. I want to work in your life. So come, come close, come close. Let me wash you. Let me clean you off. Let me in. Let me begin to work in you. Let me do surgery. Let me make you into someone different. Jesus is so worthy to be trusted. Amen. Now, if you're rejecting or you're ignoring Jesus, then that means, always means you're trusting in something else instead either yourself, some other person, or some other ideology. And so again, I've talked about the importance of asking questions. This is a good question to ask yourself. Is what you're currently trusting in now full of grace and full of truth? Is it? If it's Jesus, you're good. But if it's something else, then ask the question. Is that thing you're trusting in, whether it's yourself Someone else or a different ideology, is it full of grace and full of truth? Or is it 50-50? Is it a coin flip, what you get on each day? Well, I'm feeling good today, so it's going to be grace. And I'm not feeling so good today, so it's going to be a dose of truth. Or is it like 70-30? Or maybe is it even 100-0? Like I said, love is love. That's, that's a lot of grace, but there's zero truth in it. It's an ideology that you can follow, but it's not both. It's not full of grace and truth. The other part is a complete fantasy. Or, what, is it the opposite? Is it all truth and no grace? I read a disturbing statistic. They did a recent poll, and 37% of registered Democrats said that violence is the only solution to deal with the people who have opposite views. I don't remember the exact number, but it was somewhere in the 20% mark of Trump supporters said the same thing, that violence is the only solution to deal with the other side. That means over 50% of American citizens believe that the only solution is going to be violence. Is it a wonder why we're seeing what we're seeing? When I was young, it was all about grace. Your truth, your truth is okay. You know, let bygones be bygones. All roads lead to heaven. That was kind of the thing that we were dealing with. No, 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 no. Not today. Today it's you need to be not just canceled, but you need to be killed. 
You are standing in the way of progress. We cannot move forward without you. You need to be done away with. It's not real truth, but the concept is it's all truth and there's zero grace. If you disagree with me, you're just, you are irredeemable. You're a horrible person. We just need to eliminate you. So which is it for the thing you're trusting in? Because if it's anything other than 100% grace and 100% truth, then would you consider asking yourself if that person or that ideology is truly worthy of your trust? Now, John the Baptist was one of those eyewitnesses besides John. And so, lest we think that the idea of Jesus being fully God and fully man is John the gospel writer's strange idea that they came and said, John, we got these Gnostics who were saying that Jesus wasn't, he's just a man, he's not fully God or he's a ghost. And we got these philosophers saying, no, he was just an enlightened man. You got to fix this, John. And John wrote his gospel that Jesus is God. It's a new idea. Lest we think that, John the gospel writer reminds us of something John the Baptist regularly preached about Jesus. Verse 15. He says, John bear witness of him. In other words, we weren't just the people that saw him. John saw him and John preached about him. He testified of him and cried, preached, saying, this was he of whom I spake. You see, John says, I was there when John the Baptist had his ministry. We know that from chapter 1, that John was a disciple of John the Baptist before he followed Jesus. I heard John's teachings. And he tells us that the words that John the Baptist taught, spoke, they're important to our understanding of who Jesus is. He says, this was he of whom I spake. In other words, John the Baptist in his ministry had been preaching about the word. The word that had always been who became human and who was the Messiah everyone was looking for. And then one day Jesus showed up at John's preaching at the river and he said, this is the guy I've been telling you about. I've been telling you the word became human and he's the Messiah and he's already here. And now he's right there. And he said this, he's the one that who I been teaching you about that he that comes after me is preferred before me for he was before me. It's a mouthful, but John the Baptist is saying, there's a guy who was born after me, but he existed before me. Now, if I told you that, I said, you know, my little brother, he actually existed before me. We'd be like, well, we're going to have to ask you to stop being our pastor. (laughs) Things aren't clicking like they used to, right? None of us would say such a thing. But John explains, no, no, no. He The guy who was born after me, he actually has existed before I did because, he says, for he was. He always existed. That's that same was. The word was. In the beginning was the word, that eternal word, because he eternally existed. He always existed. Before me is a different before me here. It means he existed first compared to me. Remember what I said about David and the Messiah? Same thing here. John would never call his baby cousin, his younger cousin, he's more important than me. He would never say that because he's his baby cousin. Maybe it's only baby by six months, but still, I got six months on you, bro. At least I got that. And yet John consistently preached, no, he was born after me, but he existed before me because he's more important than me. He's first compared to me is what before me means there. And John the Baptist, 
He wasn't the first person to explain the Messiah this way. David wasn't. David wasn't the only person to explain the Messiah this way. In the Old Testament, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that verse that we so often quote during the Christmas holidays. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and I'll quit in a second. He said, but you, Bethlehem Ephratah, Bethlehem in, in that area of Judea, though you be little among the thousands of other cities in, in Judah, yet out of you shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, the Messiah. And then he says this, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting, from the days of eternity. You see, Micah had taught, David had taught that the Messiah was going to be God come in the flesh, God becoming human. And so John points out, this is not just my idea. My first teacher, John the Baptist, taught it too. And so, what have we learned? Jesus became human, but he retained all of his divine glory. I think it's important for us to remember those two things, because we're going to celebrate the Lord's birth in a few weeks, and while for some people it's not a spiritual holiday or it's not a religious holiday, I think sometimes even for those that it is for, it can get reduced to, well, this is the holiday to the Christian God, like we have holidays to other gods out there. But the incarnation is so much more than that. Jesus brought God close for all of us to see. And when we receive that, if we receive him, we can experience all that grace and all that truth. Amen? Let's all stand. If you have never made that decision to receive Christ, I would ask you, please at least take time to ask the question. Is whatever you're trusting in now, even if it's just yourself, you say, I don't I believe in a God or I don't have a philosophy I follow. Okay, well, you're just going with the way you think is best. Then ask yourself, are you full of grace and truth? Are you 100% grace and 100% truth at all times? Or maybe you do have an ideology you follow or a person you follow. Is, are they or is it full of grace and truth at all times? Because if not, I would say it's not worthy of your trust. And would you please consider that Jesus is. So Lord, we thank you so much for the fact that you love us, that you are worthy, that you saw us in, Lord, our helpless estate, that you revealed yourself to us. What a cool thing. Lord, you didn't leave us to figure it out because, Lord, you knew we wouldn't. And so you gave us your word. You spoke, and then you came and lived in our midst, and you showed us what you were like. And so we thank you for these eyewitness accounts of people who watched you, who spectated you, and saw that you were everything you claimed you were. Glory indeed. Well, this morning, Lord, we just give our trust to you anew and afresh because we say you're worthy. With every eye closed and every head bowed, if you want to make that decision to receive Christ this morning, I would like to pray with you as you make that declaration of faith. So could you just raise your hand and say, I'm receiving Christ this morning. Because I'd like to pray with you as you do. Anybody this morning before we close, just say, I'm receiving Christ. Lift up your hand. Well, Lord, we thank you so much for the great salvation you've given to us. And I pray for everyone here that know you better day by day. In Jesus' name, amen.